Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week from a woman who said, Carol, he's not doing it well enough and I don't know what to do about it. It's like if I complain and nag and remind and coax, I feel like I'm his mother. But if I don't let him know that it's bothering me, I feel like I'm not being authentic. What would you advise? You know, you are not alone. A lot of partners face that issue. You know, they don't want to be the nag, and yet they know that they have every right to tell him what they need to feel safe. And if it doesn't seem like he's doing his recovery, he stopped going to meetings, he isn't talking to any of his fellowship, if he's not attending men of the battle, if he's pressuring her for sex, it becomes an issue that affects her. And you know our stance is a sex addict has to be able to work on his own personal recovery and his relationship recovery. And if he's slacking on that, personal recovery, whether he thinks he needs it or not, I always default to what Patrick Carnes says. Patrick Carnes says, don't get complacent. That's when you'll get hijacked. And we don't want you to get hijacked because that means you'll go back into your addiction and you've worked too hard. So bump it up. You know, let her know you're doing it. If you have a tendency to be what I call oppositionally defiant and you don't like being told what to do, I get that. That's most of us. And yet you're in a partnership. And, you know, in my relational healing, 
seminars, I talk about the fact that compromise and negotiation are two of the most important things you can do. Because when you compromise and negotiate, you're working together as a team. I know you may not feel like either one of you are getting what you want, but trust me. If you're agreeing to get a little bit of what you want, you're still moving in the same direction. I am Carol Jurgensen, Chief, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and wow, am I excited tonight. One of my mentors is going to be on the show, and she is a money guru uh, from the CSAC community. Uh, Deborah L. Kaplan is a master at understanding how finances play a part in power and control in a relationship. So she's going to be talking about that. She has a new book, uh, and it's called Battle of the Titans, Mastering the Forces of Sex, Money, and the Power in Relationships. And, you know, that is so important when you're looking at financial and sexual exploitation. And so if you think that maybe there's some sort of power differential around your relationship with money or power and control in general, um, this is a show for you. It'll help you to understand things better. And if you're somebody who's single, and you don't have anybody in your life, you're still going to really want to listen in because it talks about the power dynamics um, that occur in a relationship. And she's going to be talking about tools to establish sexual and financial balance in the relationship. And I don't know about you, but when I was single, and many of you know, um, I was single till I was 42, never been married, had no kids, had the best life in the world. I wanted to be married, but I did not make that my goal. I mean, I thought, yeah, I'd like to be married someday. But in the meantime, I am happy as a lark being single. I had a whole group of friends and family that were my family of choice, even though I had my own family. When you're single that long, you have men and women in your life that that become a second family. And if you're an addict and you don't have a relationship, you know that fellowship can be your second family. And one of the things that I did when I was single is that I was always reading relationship books. I wanted to know what I didn't know. So there's nothing wrong with um, looking at, at financial and and uh, sexual balance in a relationship to know what you need and what you want. And maybe you can even compare yourself now and say, wow, I would be a whole lot different if I weren't in a support group, if I didn't work on my recovery. Uh, Because the truth of the matter is, you've heard me say it a million times, if you're in recovery, whether you're in a relationship or you're single, you are 95% healthier than the rest of the population out there. You're already being led by principles and values that are important. 
You may have gone astray growing up or earlier in your earlier life, but you know what? You know, you're on the right pathway now. I'm doing a seminar for clinicians and coaches, and I tell, I'm doing it on Friday, and I say in my seminar, as clinicians and coaches helping people in recovery, relational recovery, um, personal recovery, sexual recovery, financial recovery, um, we need to be your cheerleaders. We need to let you know when we see progress because, unfortunately, you have a tendency to beat yourself up. And I know that when you beat yourself up, you are especially susceptible to shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And a lot of you don't really receive positive things that are coming your way and it's hard to own it because you've lived such a life of shame. But that's where I advocate and I use the principle myself. This is going to sound like a, a low self-esteem principle, but it's, it's permission not to be perfect and permission to have made mistakes and to have permission to, to learn from them. And that's when I say, If I've made a mistake, I say, you know what? I am not that important. Um, They'll get over it. I ask myself, how did I contribute to it? And then I remind myself, how can I prevent it from ever happening again? And I let it go. To me, that's the secret of life, being kind and gentle with yourself when your intentions are true. So... I would have to say, anybody who's listening to this show may be struggling, but they're also working on creating intentions that are true. And that's what counts. And I hope you do that for yourself. It is so important to give yourself permission to be imperfect. Now, what is one thing that you can actually own in your life where there's been a significant change, where you have really made strides in your own recovery? And when have you acknowledged that and said, I am changing. I'm a work in progress. I'm paying it forward. You know, there is nothing more important than moving the dial forward when it comes to knowing what you want and knowing how to get it. And if you don't know how to get it, that's okay. Because if you pay it forward, if you work diligently, and I do mean diligently, on being kind to others, and as Patrick Karn says, giving back, you know, doing that 12-step work, the actual 12-step, you're definitely moving in the right direction. So, okay. Coming up next, we got Deborah L. Kaplan, who's an expert on sex, money, and power in relationships. 
she's a CSAT who's also had a history of walking on, walking on, working at and on Wall Street. So it's no surprise that she has that expertise and sees many couples who had sex addiction and still battle being in a controlling relationship that results in feeling exploitive. We want to talk to her to know how is it that you get out of that kind of relationship. I know you got to see it first, right? And then once you see it, what do you do about it? That's the important thing. Now, do you have an issue with money in general? Do you have enough? Do you not have enough? Uh, Do you light up your reward center by spending too much? Are you one of those people that enjoys gambling and realizes that from time to time it gets out of control? Do you hide your money issues from those you love, whether it's your family, whether it's your relationship, whether it's your neighbor, your coworker, your buddy? Um, If you're a woman, do you buy things and keep them hid in the trunk so as not to confess that you participated in retail therapy? You know, what do you do with your money? And then do you do that because you feel like you have to because there is such a power struggle in your relationship? Or do you do that because it's easier? That's some of the things I want you to think about as we talk with Deborah Kaplan. Welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. How are you tonight? Good evening, Carol. I'm delighted to be back talking with you. I know you always have such a wealth of information. And, Deb, I'm just going to ask you, how many books have you written thus far? Well, this is my second written book, and I have had a third where, in which I co-edited with another very influential and famous individual in the sex addiction field, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Schneider. She and I together co-edited a book on the history of sex addiction, and there was a third contributor uh, who has since passed away, Mark Laser, and um, he is an early pioneer in the field of sex addiction as well. And tell us the name of your first book. Remind us what you wrote. The first book I wrote, and that came out in 2013, is called For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. You and I had the wonderful conversation and opportunity, I thank you for that, to talk about that book, uh, which was so helpful for couples and individuals wherein there was a sexual compulsivity or a sexually addictive partner in the relationship. Yeah, and I, I know that you have been instrumental in helping so many CSATs and presenting to them on financial distress and how finances and sex addiction can be so interrelated. Um, so you really do have a love for this topic about money, right? 
I, I do. I come by this topic both with a personal and a professional passion. I grew up watching my parents fight about money, as many of the listeners have as well. It, it's, it's endemic. How could couples and families not fight about money? What they fight about is always different, perhaps, and there are commonalities. With my parents, the fighting gratefully was not about that we didn't have enough money to pay the bills because we did. What they argued about was my mom, who did not want to have any financial responsibility and any awareness or knowledge about financial investments, purchases. So my dad, my father, who would pay the bills, became very agitated and very upset because he had a lot of financial insecurity due to his childhood growing up. And the argument would be my dad would say to my mom, why did you buy this or why did you buy that? And my mom, who is not a, a, a compulsive shopper but was buying things in the course of her day and in the course of raising the family, was purchasing what would be a very healthy, normal purchase. And my dad had to have everything accounted for. So there was a lot of control between them and in their dynamic. Well, that's interesting because obviously your childhood played into some of the topic of what we're going to be talking about tonight because your book, Battle of the Titans, Mastering the Forces of Sex, Money, Empowering Relationships, really deals with mastering sex, money, power in our relationships. And so can you explain what that book is about and why you gave it that name? Interesting name, I know. (laughs) And I've been asked that, uh, and I've really, by uh, the course, in the course of writing the book, it became very clear to me that Greek mythology and epic stories of power and domination was a very good literary backdrop for this book. It was really based also what became very apparent to me is that my relationship with my father in the context of fighting for my autonomy and my independence, my father loved me very much, but we were enmeshed. And I often heard myself say in the back of my head, this is like the battle of the Titans with him. And I said that over the course of my life, subsequent to writing for love and money, where I started seeing more and more couples who were struggling with power dynamics and wherein there were no addictive cycles or partners, I began to wonder if my personal experience with power and my professional experience would be of help. In the course of writing this book and in the course of exploring my own history, it became very clear that the backdrop for Greek mythology lent a beautiful context, metaphorically and literally, in addition to the title of the book, because it really was based in how my relationship became so epic in the family between my dad and myself. And so tell us a little bit about the book 
And what you mean when you talk about masterfully balancing that, well, the complex forces of sex, money, and power in relationships. I mean, you really see it as being an issue of power differentials, do you not? I, I, I really do conceptualize when I work with so many couples that money plays a very dominant position in the marriage, be it consciously or unconsciously. Couples often fight. I mean, studies have been, uh, have played out time and time again, testament that couples argue about money and that money tends to be the greatest predictor for relational or marital demise. And in the course of working with couples and individuals, when I ask them what they argue about or what is the money argument, it may not be that they argue because they have enough or they don't have enough or where they want to go on vacation, but there often is a personal perspective that couples or individuals bring with them into their relationships informed by childhood or adult experiences. And what I wanted to do was teach people and give them tools to bring a balance into their relationships. Because the fact that couples argue and argue about money is not in question. But how are they going to navigate these waters? Most of us do not know how, and many of us have our, our, we're too close to our own stuff, right? We're too close to our own issues. And that when we get wrapped up in an argument, we become uh, argumentative maybe to defend our position and perhaps less to hear where the other is coming from. And so what I really wanted to do was to write a book that would help people successfully harness their authentic selves, learn how to engage in healthy boundary setting, and really begin to value themselves and look at where they might be putting an overvaluation of others, their partner, and or things in the marriage so that the emphasis is now no longer about I can empower myself and keep you as an empowered equal partner and away from if you're empowered, that must by default mean I'm disempowered. And that's, that's the dilemma that many couples get stuck in, that if you're empowered, I'm disempowered, and therefore there's no room for the two of us to be together and healthy. Yeah, and, and I know that in the book you say that one of the greatest predictors for divorce or relationship disillusionment is conflicts about money. That, mm-hmm. you know, and I've heard that the three top contributors to divorce are fighting about money, division of duties, and sex. And in this book you talk about at least two out of the three. So let yes. me ask yes. you. What, what would you advise couples to do if they find that there is this power differential and they've got all this resentment and they um, become what I call passive aggressive and do things behind the other's back equal the score? Well, it's very interesting you just said do things behind the other's back, which would, to me, indicate the potential for feeling in uh, unable or incapable of standing up for themselves. 
so that I need to do something to co-opt my own sense of autonomy or power, but to do so in secret or behind the other's back because I either can't, would not be able to set a boundary or hold my position and take a position of this is important to me. So for example, I may have a couple who comes in and the partner, one partner, the male partner may be very upset around feeling stressed to pay the bills, make enough money. The female in the relationship, it's the heterosexual relationship, may feel that I'm home and I'm taking care of our kids. And this is very heteronormative, but this is a common complaint that I'm not adding to what we both value. I'm taking care of the kids and I'm being at home, but I myself don't value what I contribute to this relationship. So there already gets to be a division of how one partner sees herself, how the other partner sees himself, and that the division between them isn't about what are we contributing together, but it's about what I'm contributing versus what you're contributing. And that is not a healthy stance from which to begin a negotiation and compromise and communication. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I certainly see that oftentimes in the couples that I work with that, again, power differential or that, that sense that I am not as valued as you are. And therefore what I do is not as important. And again, is not valued. Um, Right. So what might you do with them so that they can work through that in a positive way and learn how to be a team and negotiate and compromise? Excellent question. Another point in the book, another issue in the book that I talk about is what I coined in the first book for Love and Money but plays a very central role here is relational currency that the word currency can mean anything. It can mean something monetary. It can mean something um, of importance, something that I put value into and that I have referent power around or with. And when couples come together, knowing what acts or behaviors or contributions in their relationship is of value and what is valued by the other is incredibly important because that's the currency that they contribute. The fact that in the prior example, the uh, female partner who did not value herself, I'm here taking care of kids at home. And while she may see this as very important, she may undermine her own sense of self-esteem because she does not feel it holds the same weight and value, perhaps, as her male partner. And yet the currency is very important, because being home or doing what it is that she is, contributing to the relationship and to the family, is of the utmost importance. And so what I ask couples to recognize is, what is the relational currency in this relationship? What do you both value? How do you show that value? How do you show that what you love about the other person? And how do you recognize this in the relationship so that you each feel loved and valued? And it's a very important point that I often uh, 
land on with many couples because it does bring them together and now they have uh, they're looking at their issues from a very different perspective and through a different lens mm-hmm. and you are so good at getting people to look at things through a different lens I remember being in one of your classes when you actually had us draw a trauma egg regarding money and Obviously, all the wounds that can occur in a family that are in some way money-related, which then, of course, morphs into power and control. And so when you begin to look at life through different lenses, um, I really think that's when you can move closer to change and forward movement and, and create more insight. Now, i got to ask you, obviously, yeah. you just shared how you know, how people can see themselves as being not in balance when it comes to sex, money, and power. Um, And he's talked about relational currency. Explain what made you decide to use Greek mythology um, to kind of exemplify a lot of the principles in this book. Early in the book, as I began to conceptualize what this book was about, and and anyone who writes will nod their head when they hear me say that the book I began to write was not the book that showed up. I thought I was going to Mm. write a different book on financial tools. Uh And I set out over a year ago to do that. And somehow the book wasn't coming together. And I put it down, and I walked away, and this was uh, in about 2018, and I walked away, and I came back, and I said, okay, I, th- I think I'm ready to approach this project. Down on paper what was important to me and what kept resonating for me and what brings me passion and about what am I passionate. And what I realized was the couples that I work with in the – ensuing years after the first book, many began to talk about what was galvanized in the news and the headlines around Me Too, money and sex. But the sexual disempowerment or the sexual abuse that was being talked about and read about in the news gave way to conversation or couples, because they began to revisit their dynamics through a different lens. As I began to conceptualize what this book was about, I realized that in many ways, some of the individuals with whom I was working really felt that they were coming up against a force greater than themselves. And that led me to think on what frame, in what metaphorical or literary frame could I build this book? All came together when the words Battle of the Titans, which is how I used to refer to the the conflict within my family, came to mind. And that became the vehicle to storyboard and conceptualize this book. When I then began to realize that those victims who have been uh, who have been paraded in the news and who have with courage told their story that they came up against the titans in their own field such as 
in entertainment or media, uh, less so Wall Street, but it's starting to emerge, but not as quickly as one would have hoped, that they themselves, these women and these men, were coming up as victims to titans in their own industry. And it all made sense that the frame had to be on an epic scale, metaphorically driven by Greek mythology, and including my own personal story, which spoke about the Battle of the Titans, which is out of the story of Titanomachy and the Battle of the Titans who fought the Olympians. That's a lot, you know. <laughs> that is a lot, and it just had a flavor, obviously, um, when Brene Brown started doing the Winston Churchill history and then started talking about daring greatly and being in the arena and, and working it out. And I think metaphors are so important in having, again, people look at things through a different lens. And when you tie it to the metaphor, which, of course, um, people can relate to because they studied Greek mythology, and then you obviously were very much um, involved with because of your own family, it really all came together, didn't it? It became a book in and of its own. It wrote itself. So, yes, because when the book that was meant to be written emerged, it did write huh? itself. And I began in earnest to write the book. I remember I was in Nashville of uh, this year. And it was one of the last business trips and teaching uh, lectures that I took before the pandemic hit. And I began to like the whole story, the storyboard and the storyline and the sparkline all came together. And there I was in Nashville, fervently writing down and, and drawing out the storyline of this book. When the pandemic hit, it became almost, uh, it, it was apocalyptic. What was happening, the forces that were coming together. And while I was in lockdown, and early on, having very little to do, because we're going nowhere, this was the absolute opportunity to really dig in and get the book to come to its to come to life and bring it to, to full expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the world stopped so that you could finish, complete, and finish the book. Well, I hate to. I I, I would never have wanted that to be the case and I never would have asked for the opportunity to show up in that way but what I was able to do because I was working from a place of passion was to take advantage and exploit in a positive way a horrible situation to bring some good out of it for what was happening in my life and for Mm -hmm. putting my energy in it in this way when a lot of the social unrest and the racial uh, uh, conflict showed up, it became even more important that this book had to be written because when we are talking about race, we are talking about forces of money. And that's a whole different conversation, but it plays into exploitation of power. And it is an unavoidable related and intertwined topic that I was able to address at the end of the book 
because I was able to talk about it in the epilogue as it was happening around the time that this book had been pretty much finished. It took more time to pub, uh, to um, edit the book and bring it into its current form than it was to write it. The writing went very quickly once I once I was working from my passion, it, the book wrote itself. Right. And so if I understand your timeline, it was probably the middle of March when everything shut down and you just creatively, like gangbusters, took over and started writing everything out. And then in May is when, obviously, all the social unrest and, and the protests occurred and you were just wrapping it up and, and writing the epilogue so that you could include that other very important power differential. Um, yes. So, it was an amazing wow. timeline. And, and the, the parallel process of what was happening on my written page and in society and the world at large was uh, really mythic. Yeah. Okay, so now I want to know, because we've got a lot of listeners that are clinicians and coaches, and then we've got a lot of listeners that are single men and women, and then, of course, we have our couples. And in this book, you talk about helping the reader identify exploitation and then create Mm. healthy boundaries and then harness their power as autonomy and level that imbalance of, of power. So what boundaries might somebody need to assert to reestablish power, and hierarchy? One of the questions, uh, one of the couples and individuals in the book um, that I talk about was really questioning whether she wanted to stay in a relationship. And the question for her wasn't do I love this person or do I not love this person? The question for her was, do I want to stay in this relationship? And that is very similar to an individual who is starting out a relationship. Very similar. Sounds ironic, almost counterintuitive, but the the similarity is this. When we come together under a cosmic cocktail of hormones and we're in that limerence stage where everything the other does is wonderful and alluring and attractive and arousing, we're not thinking, and nor should we in those moments, be thinking about, would this person make a good partner? Are they responsible with money? Will they respect boundaries? And will they honor what my wishes are in terms of the vision I have for myself and my life? Because in those moments, if that is happening, it's being assessed at a very un, uh, subconscious level, subcortical level. We're wondering, is this person going to provide for me, but we don't need them necessarily to be providing in the same way. It might be protection, and it might be respect. Providing, will this person respect me and help and protect and secure a relationship? Knowing what the other is about is asking questions. So after the limerence stage, when you know there is a relationship here, now the exploration, the real relationship gets to take shape. And to sidestep conversations that are so important 
about life decisions or life goals or how do you go about or what is it you like about saving or what are your goals in life or how do you live your life and what do you envision for yourself? These conversations are more than just getting to know someone. They're about evaluating compatibility and whether we would grow well together. People come together, one may live in scarcity and one may live in abundance, but can they both understand that? And an individual who's looking at a potential partner gets to really explore from that very core financial self-worth level if this is somebody I want to be with and grow with. And the tools that I give clients is to not sidestep those conversations. Ask the questions. Have the conversation. Don't be afraid to um, state where what one feels. And this is what my truth is, but tell me about you. What matters for you? And don't be afraid to stand up for what's important. That's the trick, really, which is to own one's authentic self and not make excuses for it and not explain it away or be embarrassed for having a need and having a desire and a want. Yes, said very, very well. And, you know, I definitely feel like having those tough conversations create intimacy and rebalance potentially the power imbalance that was there to begin with. Now, what what kind of encouragement do you give clients who are afraid to have that kind of conversation? Maybe they don't know how to assert themselves, or maybe they're afraid that it will create so much conflict it's just easier to give in or to ignore. And many people do, Carol. Many people do say, you know, let me just get along, to uh, go along to get along, and we'll resolve this some other day, and they kick the bucket down the road. They avoid having the tough conversations. And that is, from the get-go, bakes in an expectation that I won't challenge this person and that the other believes I'll just go along with what they have to say because I don't disagree with it. Conflict is healthy. Disagreement is healthy. The core issue here is not that we have to both agree or land on the same side of an argument or even of a perspective. We have to be willing to show up and own this is my perspective. And there might not be a side to take. It might simply be just stating, sharing, and position taking, this is what's important to me. Um, individuals who are afraid to suffer themselves often find that later on they'll say, I never said from the beginning what my preferences were, or I never stood up for what was important. Now that I am, I'm being told, who are you? This is not the person I know. Because they weren't authentic from the beginning, so the real authentic self now shows up, and it's harder to really be true to oneself when we are disempowering ourselves and, if, if we will, uh, suppressing who we truly are. And so owning our self-worth and our authentic self from the get-go is most important. 
And it's, it's a superpower. It really is a superpower to say, this is me. Take me or leave me. But this is who I am. Absolutely. And, you know, earlier you had said, obviously, that when people first meet and start to date um, and establish that relationship, they really are under the influence of dopamine and oxytocin. And, and there's an erotic trance that occurs. And that would seem to be enough to work through these kind of difficulties. But in actuality, and regular communication and conversation is absolutely necessary so that you can share your authenticity with each other, right? Absolutely, absolutely. To, to, um, to not question, to be passive, is to not show up for oneself. And communication is both showing up for oneself and communicating this is who I am, as well as saying, I want to know who you truly are. And our, our self-worth and how we treat others goes a long way for them recognizing how we want to be treated. And it sounds so simple, maybe almost like a, a 25-cent adage, but we teach people how we want to be treated by the very means of how we show up and what we uh, what boundaries we set and how we treat others. Um, one, of the, one of the things I, I think is so relevant here is that exploitive personalities or people who are going to be exploitive, controlling, and maybe even on the furthest end of the personality spectrum, uh, psychopathic or antisocial, love to exploit vulnerability. And it is that vulnerability that people often confuse with passivity. I don't have to be passive to be vulnerable. I can be very strong and be vulnerable. I could be vulnerable and passive, but the two are not the same. So I want to make sure that listeners really understand the difference, that I can be vulnerable and share as I am who I, what matters to me or my, or my sensitivities or what I'm afraid of while I'm standing my ground and setting a boundary. And that is also the greatest protection against exploitation. And from knowing from the beginning when we are involved with new individuals, starting a relationship or, or a job, knowing where our line is and what we are and are not willing to take is the protection against uh, if there's going to be exploitation. That's the protection that we are asserting. Absolutely. And then if, obviously, somebody is vulnerable and is assertive and gets shot down or abused or made fun of or exploited, they're in an abusive relationship. And what would you advise them? The most important um, piece of advice that I give individuals who, who are having a gut sense that if they can't own their own reality and they're not sure it's abusive, seek the input and seek the perspective of someone who does not have a vested interest in this. That some, what I want to explain what I mean by that. A loved one, a friend who cares, who's willing to say what's important, not just what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. 
someone who cares about the individual but does not have another vested interest in, in changing their opinion. In other words, if I had an agenda and I wanted to change your mind or seek have you have a different perspective because I'd rather you take my agenda, that is not coming from, at this from a genuine place. So I advise individuals to seek the support and counsel of wise others, a therapist, a coach such as yourself, a friend, a loved one, a mentor, a professional. Because sometimes the very people who are in the middle of exploitation or abuse cannot actually see the abuse for the, uh, to the extent for what it is. Giving a three-day lecture, I just wrapped up a three-day training on money and um, work. And the Allstate Foundation has what's called the Purple Purse Foundation, Allstate Insurance. And by their quote, their statistics, that money and abuse, financial abuse, as I call it, monetized rage, cutting off access to funds and employment, is present in 99% of domestic violence. I mean, that's a staggering statistic. So exploitation happens, and it happens sometimes insidiously. So one more time, tell our listening audience, what is monetized rage? Monetized rage is the use of money to exploit humiliate or control. Okay. Similar that makes total sense. And that was in your rage. first book. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And it was it plays a very important role in this book in the way that um, in depth the different ways that monetized rage does show up because it isn't always obvious. Right. Okay, well, that makes all the sense in the world. And, um, you know, oftentimes we do deal with people that are in those kind of relationships, and I love that you gave them several resources to go to. Um, I want to remind everybody that when she said a coach, she's talking about a life coach. And, and if you're in an abusive relationship, you probably need both because you need somebody who can help you with some of the psychiatric issues behind abuse. And then coaches are great at supporting you through the kinds of changes you may need to make in your life to stay safe. Um, So I just, I cannot thank you enough. I want to remind everybody that I am talking to Deb Kaplan and she just wrote this phenomenal book, and it's called Battle of the Titans, Mastering the Forces of Sex, Money, and Power in Relationships. And you can take a look at her information at www.debrakaplan, that's K-A-P-L-A-N, counseling.com, or you can email her at info at debrakaplancounseling.com. So now, of course, Tell everybody how they can get your book. (laughs) Thank you, Carol. Uh, My book is available on all online booksellers, Amazon and other, uh, wherever books online are distributed. The e-book version, because this book has literally just uh, released, 
The ebook version will be available within the end of the month, but not yet. And the audible, the auto, audio version, will be available by the middle of October. And I will tell all the listeners that this book is going to be also part of a workbook that will launch and be released in 2021. Wow, that'll be great so that you really can take a look at your issues, write them down, list them, um, and come up with solutions through the workbook, right? Right. I really want to give the reader and the listener and the anyone who reads this book, I want to be able to give them enough space to explore tools to take action and make change if need be. And most importantly, okay, to empower yeah. themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And does everybody wonder if you are not one of the smartest money people around? Well, I don't think I'm the smartest, but I'm certainly I've lived my own experience, and it is through my experience that I have knowledge. And if I can impart that, then I hope to bring everyone along with me. <laughs> yeah, you're leaving your legacy and taking people with you. Deborah Kaplan, thank you so much for sharing this book, sharing this information, and keep me posted on other projects that you're working on. Oh, you're so welcome, Carolyn. It was a pleasure speaking with you again, as always. I enjoyed it. Yes. See you next year. (laughs) See you next year. Take care. Bye-bye. So, again, Deborah Kaplan, her new book, all about the dynamics of relationships that have sexual and financial incongruity and imbalance and how to work through that and live the life you deserve. And so, as I always say at the end of every show, there will always and only be one of you at all times. I want you to fearlessly have the courage. And listen, I've got a couple of things. Next week, I'm going to be talking about a new workshop that Marnie Breaker and I are going to do. Some of you, I'm sure, love her podcast. And we're putting something together for the end of the year. Um, And... I actually have a coach who's wanting to work with partners, and she will do that on a reduced fee right now. And so if you are looking for some coaching but you can't afford the $100 plus an hour for a coach, email me at carol at carolcoach.com, and I will forward you her information. So that's two really exciting things that we got going on. And um, stay, stay tuned and post it because uh, we've got a lot of exciting guests to finish up the year. You make this week a great one, and I'll see you next Monday for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. <laughs>